0: this morning. Karen Behan, you do not leave this building until you've greeted everyone, including me. Do you understand? I can't stand when people show up in town and I have to just hear about it from a distance. Karen, you have permission to come up and rudely interrupt anybody who is talking to any of us after the service. You have the license to do that. Hebrews chapter 12 and as we shared last week, we we are gazing into This letter to the Hebrews to learn about faith. We're not really studying it from cover to cover. We're not trying to study all the nuances that are here, but we're trying to see the divinely inspired strategy that's in this book. Because, very much as we said last week, if you weren't here last week, please do get the tape. This is an, an, what's called an occasional letter. It's a letter that's written for a particular occasion. It's trying to address an issue in people's lives. It's almost like a group counseling session. Uh, and everybody, you know, it's almost like saying, okay, everybody here who's struggling in your faith and you, you're teetering on remaining faithful and walking and pursuing God and enduring, uh, if you feel like your faith is on the verge of failing, we're going to have a special meeting for you after the service. Well, that's about what this letter is. It's, it's intended to strengthen and bolster faith. And it goes about doing it in a way that informs us as to how, how do we go about getting our own faith strengthened. Now, sometimes I think we invent methods that don't quite reflect the biblical wisdom that's available to us. Well, this book is all over this subject, and we're going to learn from its methods as we study through parts of it. Let's just read this one verse here, and we'll come back to it in a few moments. Hebrews 12, verse 1, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus... The founder and perfecter of our faith. Now we're going to come back to that passage in just a few moments. But let me, let me set this topic again in front of us and remind us why this are so significant. It was, it was a significant matter. This issue of faith was significant for the Hebrews because where they found themselves... They found themselves walking in their relationship with God and walking through life. And and in very real ways that are enumerated throughout this letter, they were struggling to keep their faith above water. There were issues that were going on in their time frame. There was threats. There was persecution. They were losing belongings. There were people that they loved that were here this week and, and the next week we come together and they're in jail. Or this one comes and you know it would not be unusual for perhaps a gathering like this to have to ask for a sign-up list for people to house people who last week had their own homes. But their, their belongings have been seized. And, and this sort of news is being broken over and over again. And somebody's being tortured. and All because of their faith. All because of Christianity being present in their lives. And there's this great persecution and great challenge to walking out their faith. And so some of them... Have begun to be disillusioned. Some of them who had hopes that their lives would take on easier pathways have become discouraged that the length of this walk and things aren't changing and it's not getting any better. And when we thought this was going to happen, and we were anticipating this a new season in our life of things going well, and look what's happened. And there was there was a uh, sort of a distancing of people from one another as they began to lose faith and lose convictions and passion. As we said last week, that we're not too far from having some of those symptoms in our own lives. For different reasons, personal issues, living in New Orleans, challenges that we're facing, physical health problems, personal tragedies, put us in the crosshairs of needing our strength to find fresh faith. Our faith to find fresh strength, I mean. And Faith is such a a central issue. I put this in your notes last week and I didn't get to it. I need to go back to it. Because faith cannot be something in our life that we take the chance of letting it become unhealthy, unmanaged, and we're not looking at the strength of it, the vitality of it, because it touches so many dimensions of our lives. And I just put a few headings there where the Bible takes our faith. It's critical to salvation. Critical to salvation, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight through nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. See, salvation involves faith. You, you, you cannot be saved without faith. There is not a person ever, nor will there ever will be a person who was saved, who did not exercise faith. In their salvation. Now I wonder in saying that, because I know we we all come from different backgrounds, and you know the Bible needs to get us up the speed in some of its terminology. I wonder if you're here today, and I just want to throw this thought out. Do you have a healthy, robust doctrine of salvation in your thinking? Do you see life as there's a component in your life that you need to be saved? You're in danger. There's something that's a problem in your life that you have to have God come in and save you. You are you are a man overboard. You are needing help. You are needing to be rescued. And and salvation in the biblical sense, do you have this doctrine in you because it's what the Bible presents? Do you have it in you in such a way that it's not just, well, I know sometimes life gets tough and sure, I could use a little help. Now, do you have a doctrine that says not only do you need to be saved, everybody needs to be saved. It is the most critical, vital issue facing anybody who ever draws breath. You must be saved. And faith is critical to that ever occurring in a person's life. It's critical to our approach or our manner of life. Romans chapter 1 highlights the gospel in coming into our lives. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, faith isn't just some religious word. Faith is the manner out of which we live our lives. Now, let me, let me pull faith and, and the mystery of it out of just the religious garments that we put on it. and Because it's true, the righteous live by the biblical faith that we're describing, but in reality, everybody lives by faith. Everybody does. It may not be the biblical righteous faith that's being referred to here, but everybody lives their lives by the principles of faith. Faith has that dynamic of investing your life in things that you have less than 100% certainty about them. That's what faith involves, doesn't it? Whether you, whether you have any belief in God or not, when you got married, you got married in faith. You took a step of investing your life into another person. With the future of that, you hoped it was going to be good. You hoped it would be beneficial. You hoped it would produce years of joy and enjoyment. But did you have 100% certainty that it would? Well, no, you didn't. And there's many that are here who learned that it wasn't a certainty that there would be joy. It didn't work out. I ended up divorced. Problem came into the marriage. It was very difficult. So you get married in faith. You uh, you enter this building in faith. Anybody here personally know the architect who designed this building? Anybody? No? Anybody here when they built it? Does anybody know whether there's been a fire in this building and the, the, the structure in this thing has been damaged and it's in terrible shape? It could fall in on our heads at any moment. Does anybody know that? How many of y'all have ever ridden an elevator? Where is your hand? Let me see something for a second. Hey, don't for a second think you're not a person of faith. Doors close. And you go up twenty eight floors and free fall. <laughs> you get on that elevator with a whole lot of faith, don't you? Do you know whether that thing's been inspected or not lately? And they have a little plaque in there. How many of y'all get on and read the plaque before you press the button? (laughs) Not only faith, but blind faith as well. All throughout this building. You live in New Orleans in faith. Don't you? More faith now than you've ever had before. (laughs) Let's face it, you believe something right now about the future. Because if your belief was that every two to three years, a hurricane like Katrina will hit this city, you would not live here. You'd be gone. But you believe something about the future. Are you 100% sure that two years from now we're not going to have another hurricane? Do exactly what Katrina did? Are you sure of that? No, but I mean, I'm believing that's not going to happen. See, everybody walks in faith, don't they? You, you believe something when it comes to God. You know, to not believe in God is, is faith. You realize that. It's a belief. If you're here this morning, I doubt you'd be here this morning if you didn't have any sense of believing that there was a God. But even if you did, are you 100% certain that there's not a God? I mean, the, the real easy illustration here is, of all the knowledge that there is to know, how much of it do you know? And put a percent on it. Flatter yourself. Go ahead. I mean, in the edges of the universe, in every book ever written, in every concept that exists, in every philosophy that's available... How much of that is inside of your head? Come on, exaggerate. Two (laughs) percent? So if you own two percent of all the knowledge that there is to know, is it possible that in the 98 percent that you don't know and don't understand, God is in that? Possible, right? But you don't believe he exists. You got a whole lot of faith, don't you? You got matter of fact, I think you got more faith than those of us who believe in God. To believe He doesn't exist. And not only that, but you believe about your future. But I mean, you take a big gamble, don't you? Because you know what what biblically the Bible reveals, as well as what most people believe, that there's consequences to believing in God or not believing in God. But you don't believe that. I don't believe in God. And if I miss, I miss. Oh really? Do you believe in the consequences of missing with that faith? The Bible has consequences to it. Well, I just believe when people die, they just cease to exist. Oh, really? How do you know? Are you 100% certain about that? No? Well, then you're a person who walks in faith. So don't for a moment criticize religious faith as though it's some bizarre thing. Like, oh, those weak people who you know, believe in some kind of a God who's involved personally in their lives. That's, that's just for weak people who need some kind of support mechanism in their life. Uh, everybody lives their life by faith. Everyone does. And so you're exercising faith to walk out your existence here. So faith is critical to everyday living. It is critical to our ongoing relationship with God the way you and I relate to God, the, the, the attitude out of which we live our lives, whether it's the daily living dynamics or the uh, fact of how we anticipate God. Do you, do you look for God in every moment of your life? So this is a faith issue. Are, are, you, are you basically a pessimistic person? You walk through life and you, you, you greet events and you analyze them for all that they're worth, you know, put them into the test tubes of natural reality, do some testing, draw some samples out, run it through some machine, and in your mind you just feed out, this is bad. This won't this it, this can't be good. It's just no, I'm drawing a line. There's no way this can turn out good. Well, that's faith. It's belief in your ability to look at the circumstances and interpret how they will affect your future. Now, a person who has God in that, person whose manner of living And his ongoing relationship with God begins to draw into the equation, God is sovereign. God is involved. God is my Father. God is in the details. I'm not off course because I'm in His hand and I can't be outside of His hand. I begin to bring that into my thinking. That's got to affect pessimism. If you're a pessimistic person just by nature, you need to ask yourself, are you insulting God? Because you have excluded Him from that which you think is so bad. I mean, there's a whole teaching, and it's in Hebrews, and we'll get to it at some point. There's teaching on persecution. There's teaching on suffering. You can can be under the discipline of God that's intended to produce good in your life, and it feels bad. If you extract God from that, it's just bad circumstances, isn't it? But that's faith. Or it's a lack of believing a certain thing. It's faith in the wrong thing. It's still faith, though. And we still walk by it. It's critical to our prayer life. Matthew twenty-one twenty-two says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You can be doing a whole lot of praying and not a whole lot of believing. And you can come up with a very distorted view on what on earth prayer is because you're trying to define it without the chief mechanism in its activity, and that of faith. It is the target of the enemy's attack. As we said last week, when when Satan wanted to come after Simon Peter, it was his faith that he was after. Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Do not hold your faith lightly. The enemy wants it more than he wants anything about your life. Because it is the most important mechanism for you to connect with God. It is a prize to be held on to. It is that which needs to endure the race and run all the way to the end. No such thing as somebody who stood in heaven who ran halfway, stands before God and says, I'm sure glad I ran half the race. I'm sure glad I got that fire insurance going on early on in my life. Okay, that, that's not, by the way, that's not the doctrine of eternal security. That's not. Unfortunately, people don't teach the Bible well. They don't teach doctrinally. Eternal security is not well taught by somebody who said, I'll pray to prayer once, I'm fine. No, it, the eternal security of the Scripture has faith present from beginning to the end you are never without faith and it is always effective and and active in your life and you cross the finish line with it And Paul highlights that in his own life well if we said last week that faith what is faith It, it is this assurance remember Ken Hughes gave us this word faith's character is in a word certitude It's a dynamic certainty. It's this confidence about what God has promised. Now, the question for us is, if that's the nature of faith, the nature of faith is is being certain, having confidence. And the question is, what is the basis for our confidence? That's what I want to get at today. What's the basis for our confidence? Is it because, well, I'm just a big faither? That's what I am. That's why, that's why I'm so confident. Or, you know, Steve, it doesn't surprise me that you just man, Brother, you've always been just a big man of faith. Okay, listen to where I'm putting the emphasis. Oh, that person's got so much faith. And is, it, is faith important? I just spent a whole page worth of notes saying faith is important. We're going to come back to that over and over again in the weeks ahead. But please, this is the right starting place. Last week, we just kind of introduced the subject. This is the right Starting place for faith. And it has to do with the subject or the title for today's message. The most important thing about your faith isn't your faith. The most important thing about your faith is not your faith. And let me take that apart a little bit. The most important thing about your faith is the object of your faith. Now think for a moment here. Put in your outline the thought that it seems as though faith has, its, uh, has become its own worst enemy. How often ideas on faith have become more about faith than about the object of our faith. Let me give you two common enemies here today. Enemy number one. When the goal of faith becomes just having faith. Rather than believing the right thing. In religious circles it's not unusual for the goal... To be just believe something, just have faith. You just you just got to have faith. I mean, the songs about that. You got to have faith. You know, it's 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 not so much what you believe; it's that you believe. Well, you believe something different from me, but that's all right. You know, that works for you. That's you know, that's okay. But you got to believe. Is that valid? Now now listen. the farther we grow in our postmodern era and life that we are, a, this generation we're a part of, the more what I'm saying today is going to sound bizarre. Now, I, I, I thank God for everybody here who has spent time having their minds renewed by the Word of God rather than having them taught by the world. Because when I, li- when I listen to postmodernism and its thoughts and its relativism and, and hey, whatever works for you, no, no, I don't believe that. But if you believe that, no, that's, that's what's important. It's what you believe. I listen to that. I, 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 want, I don't know. My response is a cross between throwing up and laughing. I don't really know how to clarify it. But, because when I come to the Bible, that is a crazy concept. But what I'm going to say today, if you listen through the ears of the world that you live in, is going to sound crazy to you. But I actually believe it will make sense. But it just will sound bizarre because it's, it's just so not the mood of the day to think this way. And Think, with, think through a couple of questions here i up put in your outline. Can faith be meaningful in the presence of contradiction? Can faith be viable and meaningful in the presence of two different objects that contradict one another? I stand up here today and I say, today's Sunday. We're in church. Today is Sunday. And you stand up and you say, no. Today is Saturday. Well, I appreciate that, but I really believe today is Sunday. I really, really believe that. How viable is my belief? See, the viability of my belief comes from the object of my belief. I'm believing the wrong thing. No, but I'm really convinced. I appreciate that, you know, well, it's Saturday for you, but it's Sunday for me. Now, does that work? But I I see, I really believe it's Sunday. So the the whole world changed the way it thinks. You know, why didn't you show up for work on Monday? You were late. You didn't even come to work on Monday. Well, it was Saturday to me. (laughs) Try that on your boss. (laughs) And you didn't come Tuesday easy. Well, it was Tuesday for you, but it was Sunday for me. That's crazy. right? We don't function that way. How can we stand and say, well, it's whatever you believe? Well, if you believe something that contradicts what I believe, one of us is wrong, or perhaps both of us are wrong. But we're not both right. That's the one thing we definitely know. Is it possible for faith to be beneficial if it believes something that's not true? All right, how many of you guys have received your tax return yet? But you believe it's coming, Right? If you filed and you've got a return, you've got a refund coming and you go out and make some major purchase, you buy that thing. And a month from now, you get a notice from the IRS saying you calculated wrong. You owe us money. (laughs) No, no, I don't believe that. (laughs) Try that. (laughs) Write them back and say, well, that's that's good for you. If you believe that. But I believe this. <laughs> See, this is, this is gobbledygook. It's ridiculous. We don't live this way. Except when it comes to religion. Then all of a sudden, faith is this mysterious, bizarre, meaningless thing. We don't live by faith this way. We, we, it matters what you believe. Is sincere faith enough? I mean, I really do believe that I'm getting a refund. I really, really do. I'm sure the IRS agent will... I mean, the more sincere you are, I'm sure the more that will change the amount of the refund. I'm sure that will happen, right? Well, you know, the more sincere you get, I'm looking here, right here, and it looks like the numbers are changing. <laughs> you don't owe us. Look, looking like we are owing you. Oh, I really believe that. Does sincere belief trump false belief? I mean, come on, if I'm really sincere and I'm nice... I'm not a jerk about it. I'm not like one of those Christians who just believes the Bible's true and nothing else. I'm not like that. I'm nice, and I really believe this. Shouldn't I be allowed to believe it? Well, you can believe it, but it doesn't change whether it's a false belief or not. Now, in this realm of religion, let's put us into the realm of religion here. I put a couple thoughts here about Islam and Christianity. Only one of these can be right. They're both called faiths, but only one of them can be right because they are diametrically opposed to each other. Now, you are sitting today in a church. I'm going to take the position that this is the truth, and so therefore, I'm going to clearly state that I believe Islam is a lie, is not the truth. And, and living in a postmodern world, you are probably on the edge of uncomfortable with me even saying that. Like you. Why can you say that? It's it's unkind. It's not doesn't work in the society well. You know, it's it's just not right for you to tell people they're wrong. It's just it's not right to do. I mean, you can't say that about Islam. Well, let's everybody dig your head out of the sand. Islam says that about you. Islam's not running around saying that. Sure, there's us and there's Christianity, and it's like whatever you believe. Islam is not saying that. Islam is standing and saying, all you Christians, you're wrong. What you believe is wrong. Get the ugly shoe off of Christianity. For some reason, we always get to wear the ugly shoe, because we stand and we say, the Bible says something and we believe it. Oh, well, you're dogmatic. You're not caring. You're insensitive. Can you understand? I'm going to read you a couple of thoughts here today. Most religions, if you'll study them at all, are dogmatic. They don't just get shot by Christianity. They fire shots back. Some of them fire the first shot. And so when it comes to faith, we have to get out of this idea that it's, it's okay for people to just believe whatever they want to believe. Now, people do have the freedom in America to believe whatever they want to believe. Okay, we're not talking about governments here. But by way of consequence to your belief, somebody's believing something that won't benefit them. As a matter of fact, you can be believing something that will harm you in the end. Listen to these thoughts and the differences between Islam and Christianity. Uh, In the book, The Truth About Islam, it says, although Islam claims descent from Judeo-Christian thought and purports to honor the previous scripture, which is the Holy Bible, remember uh, Islam doesn't come around until about the 5th century. So it, it's, it's Johnny-come-lately in terms of the religion world. Salvation through redemption by another is a completely alien idea to Muslims. Salvation through redemption by another, by a substitute coming to take the place of guilty man, is a completely alien idea to Muslims. Now, if you know anything about Christianity, you know that Christianity presents that concept of salvation as the only hope of humanity. Humanity cannot save itself by any action that it does. It falls short and it will receive the judgment of God as a result of falling short. The only remedy for that, the only, only, only remedy for that problem is the substitute of God becoming man and taking the punishment himself upon himself. Islam believes in no such event, in no such activity, nor in the need for it. There's a huge contradiction in these beliefs. The acknowledgement of sinners' basic need for salvation is entirely absent from Islamic thought. The message of Islam concerns men and women as they were created by God, not as fallen beings. We have two versions of man in in Islam, the way you do in Christianity. Muslims do not recognize the inherent sin nature of man. Violation of the law of Allah is simply due to human forgetfulness, not because of any internal corruption. Repetitive prayer and Quranic recitation are established to assist man's poor memory. Now, can you see a a huge difference in problems that are being solved here? Islam sets out to solve the problem of forgetful man. Christianity sets out to solve the problem of fallen man. Two totally different problems here. These are not the same beliefs at all. These are not even the same God, as we'll see in just a moment, at all. These views cannot be compatible. The remedy for one man's situation is just to remind him and to get him to go through enough external acts over and over and over again that he'll stop forgetting how to live right before Allah. The remedy of Christianity is that man has fallen. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Dead men just don't do well with a cheering group. You can't come along to dead men and say, here's a new set of rules. Come on now. You just need to be reminded about these new set of rules. The problem for Christian doctrine that it has to solve is that man is dead in his sin. Man is in rebellion against God. Man is a slave to sin. He will not do right unless this God intervenes. So you have, on the one hand, you have forgetful man who needs to be reminded. On the other hand, you have fallen man who needs to be resurrected. You have a very, very different issue that's here before believers. These two beliefs. Islam makes no room and no place for the Holy Spirit. See, it doesn't need it. If there's no issue of fallenness that needs to be overcome, and you just need to do a better job. And here's some rules to do a better job, which is the, the heart of Islam. But Christianity comes along and makes statements like, you must be born again. Now, that must word, it, it, it doesn't leave wiggle room, does it? It doesn't come along and say it might be helpful for some of you if you would be born again. But for some of you who choose Islam, well, that's just as viable. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Why? Because you're dead. And if you're not born of the Spirit, you're going to remain dead and apart from God forever. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in you and give you new life and regenerate you, any hope of change in your life and growth and becoming more like God is never going to occur. Very different beliefs, aren't they? Well, it gets worse. Concerning Jesus Christ. Here's what Islam believes concerning Jesus Christ. Believes He is not God. Surah 517 says, In blasphemy indeed are those that say God is Christ. So Christianity... Is blasphemy in the eyes of Islam. He is not the Son of God. The Christians called Christ, call Christ the Son of Allah. Allah's curse be on them, Surah nine thirty. Surah nineteen thirty five. It is not befitting to the majesty of Allah that He should beget a son. And do you understand who's shooting the shots here? You understand who's wearing the ugly shoes now? Christianity, uh, Islam doesn't stand around and say, well, you know, look, Christians, if, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine as long as you believe in your own. You're committed to what you believe. No, you are blasphemers and you're under the curse of Allah. Hey, now, Christianity says that, that we are those who bring praise to God and declare the excellencies of Him, and that we are those who are under the grace and favor of God. Now, both of these things can't be true. So the object of your faith severely matters, doesn't it? Islam claims he was not crucified. They did not kill him, nor crucified him. Now, one of these things is not true. They're both not viable. Faith only has a viability if the object is viable. One of these is not true. And, you know, at some point here, the niceness that's in human circles, needs to meet sound thinking. Now, one doesn't have to be obnoxious to have a different view. I'm not purporting that, that you should stand up and uh, be violent or obnoxious in how you hold your convictions, but it is sheer goofiness to take such diabolically different views And to say, well, whatever you believe. See, this is enemy number one to faith. It doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you have faith. Welcome to America. Now, we live in a plural society. Uh, A person who worships God differently than another person should be able to live next door, abide by the laws of the land, be a contributor, be a part of this country, not be ostracized for it. Those are fine laws. We're glad for them. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about before the court of God, before an eternal God. What really matters when it comes to faith? It matters what you believe, not just that you believe. Now, that's two conflicting religions. Can I, can I get us within Christianity for a moment make us all really uncomfortable here? If you study church history, you're going to know that in the 16th century, there was a major schism that developed within Christianity. Christianity had been on this pattern of drift. At least a segment of it had been on a pattern of drift for a number of years. And some individuals within Christianity begin to stand up and notice that the object of faith is changing. And people are believing in different things. And men like John Wycliffe and John Huss back in the 15th century began to raise questions about, you know, are, are we believing the right way? This is really what the Bible teaches. Is this the way to salvation? Because the emphasis was growing more and more and more into the categories of human activity. Human actions before God. Human contribution. Human right activity. Human merit was a word that was being tossed around quite a bit. And whether it was prayers or righteous activities or giving of money... All these activities began to become issues that had to do with your salvation acceptance before God. And you had, you had terminologies that grew into activities like penance and indulgences. And where did all these things come from? They were based in the thought that man needs to contribute something into this category of salvation. And a man comes along, and he was not the only man, but there were others. But the, the man who gets the most press is a man named Martin Luther. Comes along, and he draws up 95 statements that he believes are at odds with what his convictions are biblically. And I, I don't know that all 95 of them I would agree with, but he, at the heart of what he was saying, he had noticed Christianity was splintering away from biblical truth. The object of faith was changing what one believes about salvation was changing. And he called for a reexamination of it. He said, we must consider what we're believing. And he nailed this to the door of a church and said, we need to debate these issues. And we need to come back to realizing what the Bible has taught. And he was not alone, but he was certainly in the minority. And at that point, the, the church, which was at that point recognized as the Catholic church, did not turn around and say, Martin, whatever you believe. Really. Martin, you got your positions and your beliefs and we've got ours. That is not what happened. The Catholic Church stand up, put on the ugly shoes and said, you are wrong in what you believe and your beliefs are unacceptable and you must recant all these statements that you have made because they're wrong. It wasn't a position of, hey, we're okay, you're okay. Can 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 I highlight something here? Because, you know, I've grown up in New Orleans. I was raised Catholic here in New Orleans. And, and as I have grown in biblical knowledge and in finding out what I believe based on Scripture, what I have always bumped into is this sense that if if you're Catholic and you're here today, and there's many folks here today who would be Catholic, when you stand and make statements like what I'm making right now, I'm wearing the ugly shoes, aren't I, I can't believe. I can't believe you're even talking about Catholicism. I can't believe you're questioning anything about it. As though that shouldn't be done. And as though anybody who does that, anybody who questions another's beliefs, is doing something that's wrong and objectionable. Now, right now, you see me wearing the ugly shoes. But if you go back to the Council of Trent that took place in the end of the 16th century, the Council of Trent took all these statements by the Reformers and it analyzed them all and it developed a counterstatement for all of them. And the Council of Trent put it into the church's document saying, if you believe, for instance, that a man before God is justified by grace alone, let that man be anathema. Now, who's wearing the ugly shoes now? If you dare to believe that this Bible teaches you that you are saved by the grace of God alone, then you are cut off from God. Well, that's not a real nice thing to say. That certainly isn't somebody coming along and saying, look, as long as you believe what you believe, that's really what matters. You understand, holding to a conviction in the category of faith, it doesn't just belong to Christianity. It belongs to many religions. It belongs to many religious views. And so what you and I have to come to grips with is what does this really teach? Because Martin Luther stood up and made noise about the issue of salvation by grace that's received through faith. And He distanced it from the works of man. Now it's either salvation that has merit of man mixed into it, or it is salvation that does not have merit of man mixed into it. But it cannot be both. One of them is wrong. you turn back from Hebrews, I'll give you a couple of interesting scriptures. Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Paul writing and addressing this issue the issue of salvation to a group of individuals who didn't want to deny Christ these weren't uh pagan ideas these weren't moon and sun worshipers these were people who had an idea about Jesus Christ but they wanted to add to the work of Christ the work of circumcision they wanted to bring a tradition from their previous religious background into Christianity and say, man must, yes, he must believe in Christ, but he must also contribute this work of circumcision himself. It is that context that this statement is addressing. Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery was the circumcision rite that was trying to be proposed for the church to honor. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You won't minimize his advantage to you. He'll go from full advantage to zero. That's where his advantage will be in your life. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What is not being understood is if you introduce the concept of human merit into salvation, things that I must do, some level of activity I must do, then immediately you've signed on for the law which requires you to be perfect. You want to run the race? You want to do it based on your contribution? Then your contribution must be perfect. It's no longer about Christ now, it's about you. Can you be perfect? Because if you can't be perfect, this is not a document you want to sign. You'd much rather let somebody who is perfect on your behalf sign the document rather than you have to sign it and then maintain it. Not only be perfect now, you have to be perfect for the rest of your life. Well, in reality, you're already disqualified because you haven't been perfect so far. See, this doesn't work. They can't get along. If you turn back to Romans... It gets even more hairy, Romans chapter 11, verse 5, highlighting those who are receiving the grace of God and are saved. It says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by God. Grace, not based on merit, chosen by grace. Not, not because somebody did a few more extra things or a little bit nicer things than somebody else. Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's quite a statement, isn't it? If you take the ocean of God's grace and you add to it a drop of human merit, that ocean is no longer grace. That's how big this is. Now, human merit, even a dropperful, or grace, but not both. You cannot have faith in either one of them, and have a viable faith. It simply doesn't work. See, the object of what we believe is critical to the issue of faith. And that's really what this whole book is about. This whole letter is about. Go back to Hebrews 12. The other enemy I'm just going to skirt over, the other enemy that I put in your outline is is when man is maximized, this is another enemy to faith, When man is maximized and God is minimized in the equation of faith. Which would be what many faith movements have done. Faith movements and faith teachers make everything about faith and teach very little about God. You can go to a church that's big on faith and learn next to nothing about the doctrine of God. I mean, I've known people, I've known known Bible colleges that have done this. People walk away ignorant about God, but they know everything about faith. They know behind the bush of every interpretation of every verse, ultimately that verse is about faith. It's about what you believe. It's about how you sow. It's about what you do. It's it's all about faith. Faith becomes, is faith important? Did we start this message by saying faith is important? It's not the starting point. The most important thing about your faith is not your faith. The most important thing about your faith is the object of your faith. Hebrews chapter 12. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also set aside or lay aside every weight and sin which clings to so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This verse starts with a word. Therefore. Therefore since. That word therefore is always a critical word in the Bible. Years ago, I don't know who, what Bible teacher stuck this thought in my head. Whenever you come across the word therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. It's, it's a bridge point. It's connecting two sections of thought together, and it's making one dependent on the other one. So this word is critical. Now, when we get to chapter 12, what is it that's just been said? Well, we just came out of the great hall of faith. All the teaching that gets centralized on faith, what faith is, and all the examples that are given to us from the Old Testament of people who walk by faith in their life. And we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. So therefore, since all this has occurred, what we're doing is we're actually building the next point in this saga, a saga which, by the way, begins in Hebrews chapter 1. We said last week when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, you have gotten to the top of the mountain. And now you're about to hear the crescendo of music in this next verse. Here's what the, I believe. Here's where this entire book is strategically designed to go. Since we're surrounded, therefore, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, oh, if a symphony could play right now, this is the crescendo of this book. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus. The most important thing about your faith is the object of your faith. And this entire book is about Him. This whole book, with all of its... Strange components of Melchizedek's and priesthoods and animal sacrifices and angels and Moses. All this is simply about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the very foundation and the most important thing about our faith. Putting your outline, the battle in Hebrews must be our battle too. To keep the object of Christ in view at all times. This is the strategy in this book. These are folks on the occasion of having failing faith, challenging times are upon them. They're wondering about what they've believed. Is there a future? Should we endure? Do we bail out? The remedy for them is to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. The object of your faith is the most important thing about your faith. I think Matt shared something about it this morning, either in prayer time or during the service. What what causes worship is a clear view of God. What causes faith to become large faith is a large God. You you just can't back away from God, let Him become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and and stand back here and go, I'm going to pump up my faith. That's not how faith operates. I don't know what you're pumping up inside of you, but it's just some kind of a psych job. The way in which faith gets enormous is when you get closer and closer and closer to God and God becomes a wonder and an awe. And He inspires you and overwhelms you and you look back at your life and you go, oh, look at all the little things going on. That's the, that's the solution to a crisis of faith. It's a big, great, huge, enormous, wonderful God. And that's where this whole book went. I hope you're reading through the book because, you know, if you'll read it, you can read this book in one setting. Now, what I ask you to do when you read through it is, is try and group the thoughts together. Because rather than, oh, man, there's 12 chapters here. There's only about three or four major thought sections that precede this. And they're all sort of examples. It's, it's all, look, let me just back up real quick. Go back to Hebrews 1. Listen to way this book starts. And it is because God is inspiring the book to arrive at chapter 12 and arrive at chapter 11. Here's its starting point. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's what the book is about. The book is about his son. The book is about revealing who he is, what he's done, what he's like, what his ministry was, what he accomplished, the person and work of Christ, and it takes one verse to get us into what this book is about. This book is short on greetings, it doesn't tell anybody hello. It's like all that all that's gone from this book. Tell so and so, hugs and kisses, none of that. Right to the point. What we have here before us is a portrayal of Christ. Now, listen to where the book goes. I just want you to catch the flow here, and I'll just pick up a couple of examples. I think I've put them in your outline. keeps going, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this doesn't sound like Islam, does it? These things cannot be true simultaneously. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, we could stop right there, couldn't we? Could we stop right there and just jump right to Hebrews chapter 12? Keep your eyes on him, the one who upholds the universe. The basis for you having great faith is because you're believing in the God who upholds the universe. However, that can be done. Well, he does it. I lost my place. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But which of the angels did God ever say? You are my son. Today I've forgotten you. Look, look at the distinction here. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And again, when he, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, Laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. by call back to faith in this person. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience re- received a just retribution, this is sobering words, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Who is this salvation in? Who is this salvation about? It's about the person of Christ. It's interesting that the writer jumps into making Christ superior to angels, and he's about to jump into a moment to making Christ superior to Moses. Moses, the great hero of the Jewish people. Moses, whom they would have studied and respected and known a lot about. Moses, perhaps, in some of their minds, who had superseded Christ, that the writer has to come back in and say, Moses is not as important. In the time in which these guys lived, there were teachings about angels, some of them being superior to the Messiah who was to come. And he has to step back in and say, the ministry of Christ is superior to that. Now listen, can, can I, I'm not putting my ugly shoes on, but you're going to think I am. I grew up, now maybe this, is, I'll, I'll give you this disclaimer. I don't know your personal experience. Maybe when you grew up in religion, it was different than mine. will tell you mine. I grew up in a setting that knew a lot about Traditions but did not major in the doctrine of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. I grew up in a family that was very devoted to Mary and spoke of her often with great fondness and affection, prayed to her for assistance and help. Yet there was not much said about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that may be our experience. It is the Hebrews' experience. Moses has eclipsed Christ in the tradition of the Jews. The tradition of angels has eclipsed the work of Christ. See, this can happen. It happened to them. It can happen to us. Don't think for a second it can't. But this whole book, this book is about the person of Christ. And the reason why faith is ever going to be strengthened is because I'm absorbed in the person and the work of Christ. And you can walk through the rest of this book. I put in your outline if you go back and look at those verses. Over and over again, every time there's a side point that's made, it's a side point about the priesthood, it comes back to, but Christ has a superior high priestly ministry it goes and explains something about the old covenant it comes back and it says but he has inaugurated a greater covenant it drifts off into the thought about bloods of of bulls and goats and it comes back to but the blood of christ and then we get to chapter 10 where we started last week the basis for our confidence is because christ is superior to the angels he's superior to moses he's superior to melchizedek his priesthood is superior to aaron's his blood is superior to any animal's blood being shed. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place by His blood. You understand? Everything that gives us a sense of confidence to stand before, the, before God and receive anything from Him, to be accepted by Him, is because of the person and the work of Christ. See, The most important thing about your faith is not your faith Because you can have big, huge faith in a little bitty God. And you've got a problem on your hands. Or you can have big, huge faith in something that's not God at all. You can have big, huge faith. Some people fly airplanes into buildings because they really, really believe what they believe. And they believe that by killing other infidels, they will secure for themselves a place in paradise. And they really, really believe that. Now, if you believe the Bible, not only can you not believe that, but you are under the obligation to help others to not believe that either. You are not under some American postmodern obligation to keep your opinion to yourself, to stand on the grounds that says, well, you know, this is what works for me, but whatever works for them. We want some more buildings on the ground i me tell you why this, I'm, I've got to fly my ointment when I say that. You all remember Franklin Graham's response to what happened in 9-11? He stood up publicly. This is a major Christian figure. He stood up publicly and condemned Islam. He said, it, it is not the same God. I was so thrilled to hear some Christians say that. Allah is not the same God. Allah doesn't have any children. He doesn't have a He doesn't have a son. Jesus Christ isn't God. He's not triune. There's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not the same God. He stood up and said, Allah is not the same God. And it is an evil and wicked religion. Well, that was not the right thing to say in America. Now, by contrast, by contrast, Robert Shuler, stood up and said, the reason why things like this happen is because of things like Christian evangelism. Because Christian evangelism stirs up hostility by telling other people what they need to believe. This is a guy who says he's a Christian. But please don't for a second think that you can't come under the sway of postmodern thinking and start letting your faith just drift off into anything. People smarter than me have arrived at some really peculiar places. The object of our faith matters. Matt, go ahead and, and come up. Ultimately, any crisis of faith is a crisis in seeing and trusting the person and work of Christ. If you're having a moment of difficult faith, it is because the challenge is present of seeing and trusting the person and the work of Christ. That's the whole strategy to this book. Getting Christ to be seen for who he is and therefore worthy to be trusted. I love C.S. Lewis' thoughts as he scatters them in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, the great lion representing Christ, speaks to Lucy and says, Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you are bigger. She hadn't seen him in a while. Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, God doesn't get bigger. We just move from the great distance that we have of him. And he's, you know, everything is small at a distance, isn't it? The sun, it's a little bitty dot, smaller than a golf ball, isn't it? Ever see the earth next to the sun? It gives you a better sense of proportion. <clears throat> When our knowledge of God and who He is is that far away from Him. God is this little bitty God. Now when we draw near to Him and learn of Him, He doesn't become bigger. We just see Him more clearly. The same way that Lucy saw Aslan. As we grow in Him, and that's what this whole book is about. It's about growing in Him. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing His ministry. Knowing what He accomplished. If you're challenged in your faith, and you're struggling in your faith, if I had to, if I had to give you a medication that would help faith become healthy, it would, it would operate the way this book operates, the way Hebrews operates. If you read the whole book, you're going to see here's divinely inspired strategy for faith to grow. And it is over and over and over again drawing our attention and our clarity back to who is Christ. Who is he? What has he done? How does that affect me? What did he accomplish? How is he superior? What, what in the creation can I use as a stepping stone? The old covenant? Let me stand on that and look at him. The priesthood, let me climb on top of the priesthood and get a better look at Christ. Oops. That's, that's a problem with the priesthood. Weak as it was through the, through the flesh.
1: It's
0: not the rock. I'll tell you that right now. The rock wouldn't have moved. My life would have not been in danger for a moment. Let's stand up together. Let me ask you to consider. Just maybe close your eyes and think for a moment about your faith. Let me shoot a warning flare up to you. If You're here today and you hold a view that there are many faiths that are viable but, but you would say that you're a Christian I would only strongly encourage you to read the letter of Hebrews and become much more acquainted with the scripture and I would also encourage you to reconsider what really do you believe I believe in Jesus Christ Do you believe in the Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, the life? Those words came out of his mouth. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you read the book of Hebrews, you find out why that's the case. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be. Well, What about all the people who aren't? What about all the people who won't? What about people who believe differently? As uncomfortable as those thoughts are, is the Bible telling me the truth? You must be born again. It's your only hope. You're here today and you're not sure that you are. And hopefully today as you've been here, maybe the Lord has met you in some personal way. And He's called out your name. He's made real to you the fact that when He sent His Son... And his son came and bore the sins in his life, in his body, upon the cross. Your sins he bore, because of love for you, and the desire to reconcile you to himself. And here you are today. God has arranged for you to be here. I know you thought you arranged for you to be here, but God has arranged for you to be here, to speak to you, to tell you, listen. Where is your faith? Is your faith a little bit in how good you're having to be in order to be accepted by God? Even if it is a little bit, the Bible says you've fallen from grace. God stands today and says, I don't invite you to work hard so you can be saved. I don't even invite you to become a better person so you can be saved. I invite you to come just like you are and let me save you. If you're here today and you're and you want to respond to God that way, respond right now in your own heart. Faith is, is like an invisible arm that reaches out and takes the gift from God. It trusts what He says. It believes in Him. Do that right now. You can do it in your own heart. You can do it as you just stand before God. and You can use words that are your own and say, God, I, I want you in my life. Bible says for you to repent. It means to turn away from doing things your own way. Put your trust in God. Will you do that? You'll do it right now. God, by His mercy, will wipe out every sin, everything you've ever done, and everything you ever will do. The blood of Jesus, that blood in this book, it cleanses us from all sin. Right now, you can say, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse my life. I want to know you more and I want my life to be for you. And I want You in my life. To, today I put my faith and my trust and my hope in You, Jesus Christ, Son of God, who came for me to give me life. If you're here today and maybe you're having a crisis of faith, lost sight of Christ, you're in the midst of your struggles... And you just feel like your faith is on the ver- you're on the place of collapse. It's weak. It's got vulnerable spots in it. You're confused. Maybe it's not struggles that have done that to you. Maybe it's success that has done that to you. Become really noticeable and great and famous at something in your life. And you become real successful. And, and your eyes are off Christ. It's on your accomplishments. It's on your abilities. It's on the future you can bring in, your ability to provide and make money but you find Christ is at a distance. Right now, right now, in your own heart, turn back to the Lord. Turn to Him and say, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I have made this. I'm so sorry for what I have set my gaze upon. I know today what I've heard in your word is true. And I need my eyes to be focused on Christ, the author and the finisher of my faith. I need to consider Christ. I need to think on Him and dwell upon Him and meditate on Him. Lord, thank You for today. Thank You for making it clear that it's not just enough for me to be believing something. Lord, I need to be looking intently into Your face. I need to draw near and see the enormity of the work You've accomplished for me so that I will be humbled. I will be more dependent upon You. I will be more of a worshiper of You. Lord, would You do that here this morning as we close with this song. Lord, bring us to the place again where through like the eyes of a child like Lucy we look upon You and we say, Lord, You're bigger. Help us, Lord, to see You as bigger.
1: Jesus Lover of my soul All come to me glory and your fame. It's not about me. As if you should do things my way, you alone are God and I surrender to your ways. On Christ the solid rock I stand Vision expanded to see your greatness, to see you in comparison with our own size, with the size of our problems and our issues and our dilemmas in life, Lord. Blow the frames off of our picture of you, off of our small imaginations of your greatness, Lord, and take your dominance and preeminence in life. May we see the size of your throne, the size of your scepter, and may it ground us and stabilize our Christian life. Lord, may it give resolve and purpose to the things that you've planned for us and that you call us to. Take us from here with the great object of our faith looming large in our minds and hearts. For your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name you